speaking of passion, I definitely just sort of went like, this is what I got. I have my passion. So hopefully it'll be enough to get me into the school. It's the epitome of just showing up. <laughs> I remember feeling like that on the trapeze, like I could go into the studio and just kind of mess around for hours and then maybe something, one trick will come out of it or one little movement and it's a wonderful moment instead of feeling like I have one hour where I have to create my whole act. Playing around is actually how we create and I think that that's a very healthy thing in circus. Welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast and hello. We're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators and the backstage masters. My name is Anna Rob. And my name is Anna Aguilera. On this episode, we are joined by Shanna Carroll and we're going to talk about all things circ and trapeze and choreographing and directing circus shows. As co-founding artistic director of The Seven Fingers, Shanna Carroll wrote, directed and choreographed Passengers, Cuisine and Confessions, Sequence 8, Traces, Psy, Loft, La Vie, Le Meme, Du Coplico, and Fairy Amuse. Through Seven Fingers collaborations and special projects, she created the show within the Queen of the Night experience at the Diamond Horseshoe in New York City, designed the first segment of the Sochi Winter Olympics opening ceremony, and directed and choreographed Dual Reality, an immersive circus show based on Romeo and Juliet for Richard Branson's new version Voyager's Cruise Line. Shana has also frequently collaborated with Cirque du Soleil, most recently as director of their first show on ice, which is called Crystal, and previously as acrobatic designer and choreographer of Paramore on Broadway and Iris in Los Angeles, and as director choreographer of their performance at the 2012 Academy Awards. Shana is well known for her acrobatic and circus choreography. She choreographed four gold medal winning numbers at the Festival Mondial du Cirque du Domaine in Paris. She has received Best Choreography nominations at the Drama Desk Awards and the San Francisco Bay Area Theatre Critics Circle Awards. Originally from Berkeley, California and daughter of beloved San Francisco columnist John Carroll, Shana began her career as a trapeze artist with San Francisco's Pickle Family Circus and went on to a 20-year career in the air with Cirque du Soleil and many others before founding The Seven Fingers. Shana, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you. Thank you. I feel like I should clarify that, that especially Loft and Levy were more collective creations of the company and some of those shows I co-directed with either my husband Seb or with Gypsy, my other partner and some anyway, there's there's a big mix in there, but um but it's it's a good it's a good wrap up. Yeah, I mean what a what a wonderful career and um it's probably taken you completely around the world and back again, right? Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> That's for sure. COVID makes you realize how much you were actually traveling around the world when suddenly you're not traveling around the world anymore. So exactly, yeah. So tell us a little bit about um, your transition. I, I want to start with maybe, you know, you started as a performer and then you uh, transitioned into, you know, producing and directing and choreographing what was that transition like and, and tell us how that worked because a lot of people are very interested in how to move forward from their performing career into uh, other roles. Well, so was, I mean, I sort of had an interesting path partly because so I started circus at 18, which I mean, it's funny now it's been uh, over 30 years because I'm, <laughs> I'm now 50. Um, so, of course, now I've, I've had this long career, but at the time 18 was sort of old to start circus and um 
but I, before that I did theater, I was like really, really heavily involved in theater for, for a teenager. But, you know, I would do, um, you know, just many, many plays and camps and after school programs and the school plays and the whole deal. Actually, already before I discovered circus within theater, I kind of had already a bit of um, a beginning in directing. I mean, I'd say that it's funny because as a theater student, I had a lot of teachers tell me that I really had a facility towards directing, which at the time I sort of took almost as an insult, like I was a bad actress. <laughs> because, you know, when you have your, your acting teacher say, oh, you should make a directing. Um, but I think it was, and, and also maybe it's because I was chatty and brainy and whatever that I would tend to kind of intellectualize the material a lot. But that led to already at the age of 17, I was like directing shows within not only my school, but within my, my drama studio. Um, so I kind of had that, uh, what I mean, that path was sort of already there and something I thought about a great deal. I can't say it was like my number one aspiration at the time to be a director, but it was definitely something that I was already exercising those muscles. Um, then I thought, in my mind, I'd done a complete 180 when I found trapeze and started doing circus. Um, but little by little, I think those directing seeds just kind of always continued to, to, to grow when I, um, even in my first, uh, like when I went to circus school in Montreal in my first years at school, I realized that what I was really passionate about was the creative side and creating acts. So I started to ask my friends if I could choreograph their acts for them. So at one point, the school actually, even though I was a student, I was hired to work with some of the younger kids to, to do act creation. Then when I went on to the school in René Soubois, I, I was the assistant director to the director for the end of the year show. And, and then when I was at Saltimbanco with, with Cirque du Soleil, I was the dance captain. And I think more than anything, that was really, you know, when you, it was seven years I was on tour with them and seven years I was dance captain. And you become the default choreographer on tour. Um, I don't know how much, I mean, it depends in different fields what a dance captain does, but quite often, you know, the choreographer is not there very often. And if there's a new artist or even a new act, you're sort of, it's on your shoulders to kind of um, work with that person or choreograph it. And and I actually had an artistic director on tour who was really supportive of that side of me and, and kind of created, um, he wanted to create sort of, um, you know, extracurricular activities for the cast. So he asked me to do just a random choreography for everyone to do, as, you know, for fun, for a cabaret. And that also just kind of really, um, continued to feed that sort of appetite I had for being uh, creative and being on that side of things and not just being a performer. So that was through my whole performing career. And so without really realizing it, I was just constantly exercising that. And then when uh, when I decided to leave Cirque in um, uh, 2000, 2001, um, and so I was 31 or something, and I really... I knew that I wanted to then like start to transition into directing and choreographing. And in fact, it is a hard transition to make. I mean, it's one thing to be dance captain on a tour, but then to then say to any company like, Hey, hire me as your choreographer, or as your director, when you don't really have that CV behind you. Um, so for me, it felt like the only option really was to start my own company and just, you know, kind of um, brave it on my own. And also I wanted to continue performing. So Again, it seemed like the perfect solution to to start a company where I could be creative and and write and direct and choreograph and 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 have a voice in that sense um, and continue to learn and improve in that domain and then still be on stage for you know I was still on stage for about five years I think in the beginning of Seven Fingers um, and did that with a bunch of friends who wanted something similar and then that was also another adventure and very stimulating I'm sure we'll get into collaborative. Um, creation and another another question 
it was a particular thing in that I think on the one hand, it was something I was constantly developing through my career and sometimes without even knowing it, just out of genuine curiosity. Like I would stay when I was on tour with Cirque, I would stay if it was light check or sound check so that I could learn more about, oh, what does it take to, you know, what, what you know, technically to focus a show and what's that light fixture called and so those were skills I realized later actually were really useful when you start directing to understand a bit about all those other facets. Um, and yet at the time, it was just genuine curiosity, kind of really wanting to know how the sausage was made, um, you know, in every show I was in. So, so yeah, I mean, I guess I don't really have one answer other than if it's, I think if it's something that you, you honestly have a, a genuine desire to continue to develop, just always be developing it through your career. Um, even your career as an artist. And I, I always was going back to San Francisco, for instance, in between contracts and teaching at the circus center there or help, you know, choreographing for the, for the kids there. And so it was something that I felt like I was flexing there. Um, and then I don't know, like start your own company, which is maybe not the best advice because of course that's a whole other, you know, a whole other big thing. But, um, but it, I mean, it was true. It was, it was nice to be able to feel like I created my own sandbox and my own playground and I could learn and have my own learning curve. And I had no one, you know, tapping on my hand if, uh, you know, if I wasn't up to the task or whatever. So, and definitely I can see even within the work over the years, you know, there's things we did 20 years ago that I'm like, oh my God, I would have done that differently now. Or, you know, it's, um, definitely you see the, 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 you know, how your profession evolves and how you learn alongside it. So it, it was nice to feel like I was in the comfort of my own company to do that. You, you've mentioned a little bit of pieces of your creative process. Do you want to dig more into that and how how you got into the creative process and creating with artists or for yourself, choreographing a show for one person or a bigger show going from some sort of idea to a show. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's so different. And also it's interesting because it's different with, with different projects, obviously, like it's a very different process for me if I'm doing a purely seven fingers touring show where it's really, you know, something I have a hundred percent control over where we, the company, we're the ones taking the risk. And so um, we just answer to ourselves. Um, and then it's different if I'm working, you know, I don't know, for Cirque du Soleil, where not only are there you know, producers and money people and blah, 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 but also, and, and higher stakes because there's a higher budget and all sorts of reasons there's higher stakes, but also there's so much has to be done in advance to creation because there's set design and, and video content and all sorts of things. So you can't like just hit the studio and improvise and start to get ideas. You really need to write it all in advance. So that creates a very different creative process. And then, I mean, even when I sort of track the, uh, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I guess I'll say, okay, let's see, let's see. Um, the reason I started, I'll go to, the reason I started doing circus, um, when I, you know, I said, as I mentioned, I was a theater student, I wasn't really a fan of, of circus per se when I was younger. And then my father got involved with the Pickle Family Circus, which was based in San Francisco. He was a writer and he, he wrote for them, wrote their book, did, was on the board of directors and ended up doing fundraisers for them, but he did citywide treasure hunts that he'd write. <laughs> plan out which were really cool so I started just kind of come you know I ended up having a, a day job there for a while like working in the office and uh and instead I'd walk in and I'd watch these people who were like my age and kind of seemed like someone I would have gone to school with or knew you know up on a trapeze hanging by one foot and so it's I mean this is a story I tell a lot so 
I apologize to anyone who's listened to other interviews with me, but really there was this moment where I saw, you know, I saw a real person and that was the difference because this was, of course, 1989, 1988 even. And up till then, I mean, in contemporary circus, I'm sure it was starting to exist, but I had never seen it. And so I saw, I only witnessed the very large three ring circuses, which is nothing, I mean, there's beautiful, wonderful things about traditional circus, but it was not something that spoke to me as a um, as an individual. And so when I saw this, you know, without the, you know, without the hundred feet between us and without the crazy costumes, whatever, just seeing this human, um, I, I suddenly was incredibly moved. And I thought it was just the most beautiful thing in the world, not only to feel like the, the courage and the risk of someone so close to you that you felt you could know doing this in front of you, just like feeling, you know, your muscles contract and all of that excitement, but also genuinely the artistic beauty of it. And I think it was like the metaphor of it all really hit me where doing theater, you're like always searching for these deep metaphors of freedom or flight. And then suddenly you see someone actually really doing those things. Um, and it felt like a much more poignant way of, of speaking about those emotions. So I really was sort of like overtaken with um, with the form and decided to to just dive into it. That said, I think later, like through my whole career, that was really a through line because it was what drew me to circus. So even when I was at Cirque du Soleil, my trapeze act, I had a solo trapeze act in Saltimbanco. And I just was really actually, I mean, I, I, I even talk now to the costume designer and makeup designer about how annoying I was because I was really always insisting on like, no, I want to look like a real person. I don't want crazy makeup. I don't want this headpiece. I refused to wear the makeup they gave me at one point because I was like, no, it doesn't. I don't. I want to be someone that you, you can see my facial expressions. If you put eyebrows up here, then you won't see if I do something. You know, I was really, it was so important to me that that was part of the experience for the audience was that in the end I'd written a, a whole dramaturgy of my act about becoming a woman that, you know, of course, maybe it was only me that could understand what was going on, but it was, there was a narrative in it that was really human. So even through that, and then when we started loft and I think my other um, uh, colleagues, my, my fellow fingers uh, were all on the same page. We wanted to like really, really just, you know, full force dive into that notion of creating a human show. And I think, you know, from being, from working on big shows with, you know, lots of costumes, makeup, whatever. I mean, that was a very simple, simplified uh, interpretation of that of like, okay, we're going to, you know, be stripped down to our underwear. We're going to be, you know, call each other by our own names and we're going to use our own voices and speak about our lives. So there was something that at the time in, you know, whatever, 2001 felt kind of just very raw and like we're stripping everything away to find the human within it. So I feel like that's, I mean, of course that was very like the most elementary version of it. And then since then with the company, obviously there's shows where there's more complex characters or more complex storylines and different themes. But I think that there's a bit of a through line of the humanity within it and the human being within it and the empowerment of the symbolism of what we're doing and, and like kind of always coupling it with something that is either there's a sense of victory with circus. If you complete a trick, like of accomplishment and celebration and just always coupling that with some sort of darker theme so that we, we have a sense that first of all, it makes for a more complete, fuller experience. that's true to life in the sense that we, we, you know, it's life has that full spectrum from the dark to the light. Um, and we put the light in perspective by having a bit, a layer of darkness as well. But it also, 
you know, tends to send a message depending on what the theme is about what it is to overcome things and what it is to empower in that way. So I feel like there's a bit of those, those themes that kind of remain in there. And then I would say on top of that, because of that, um, working with artists, you know, definitely wanting to, to tap into who they are and use their, whether it's really specifically their stories, like in the show Cuisine and Confessions that, that I did, where it was really about, it was about food memory. So we used specifically the stories of the performers involved and they had these great stories and we really created pieces around the stories. Um, so if we changed artists, we changed the story to make it true to the person. Um, or sometimes it's not, it's not necessarily as literal that it's their stories, but it's whether it's their movement quality or just their personality or their input, but just trying to make sure that there is something very real at the center of it. And, uh, and sometimes that's more layered in, uh, in a, like in a, any sort of like in theater when you have to find the, the, how the character is something you connect to and you bring yourself into it, even if it's a character. So I think that there's a bit of that. I didn't feel like I'm going circuitous here to answer the question, but, um, and I, and maybe also, I mean, because I did originally come from theater, sort of having that approach, I know that one of like, even before I started directing, I was, uh, I was teaching trapeze classes and just doing some of the exercises, the acting exercises I used to do in theater and yet doing them on the trapeze, which I felt at the time at circus school, we take acting classes, but then on the trapeze, we would either put on music or, you know, sometimes improvise, but not even that often or just do research like physical research but the things were it was, it was often really just dis, disconnected in um in the process and then try to like superimpose it on top like okay now we have to like you know have some sort of a character on this thing that we've built completely separately so I was always when I was teaching I was trying to not only do these very theatrical improvs on on the trapeze and have people I mean I actually I won't go to, go into the examples but then that also kind of led to the way I ended up building acts where the actual acrobatic research and the movement research was really driven by intention or by character or by emotion. Um, so the actual physical language is being written through that lens instead of having like, we've done this acrobatic research and now we're going to paint a layer of emotion on top of it. So that's another aspect of the process <laughs> I'm like I'm, I'm, I feel like I've gone no it's I mean it's it's really I, I love to hear that process because I think a lot of the time with a lot of those big productions now there's a lot of technical aspects and a lot of projection and all of this sort of thing and often I ask myself when I go to see those shows if we take away the the dressing at what's there and for me, it starts with whatever that human relationship is with from the people on stage performing with the audience because without that, it's just a spectacle that doesn't really mean a lot. And so I, 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 I find your process fascinating that that's your focus because it's definitely what I look for when I go to see a show. I, I, I love all the technical things. I'm, I'm, I've built shows like that with, with all the lights and the bells and whistles, but if you take it away, what is there? Is there still something? And that's where it's got to start. So I kind of, a side note question because I've worked with a lot of circus artists where they've spent their entire life trading their bodies in either sports acro or gymnastics. You said you started at 18. And so what was that? Did Were you quite physically active and sort of strong before you went into circus arts? Or, and, and was that a hard build-up? 
Yeah, I mean, it's so funny when at the time I, I when I started, I said I was going to be a trapeze artist. I mean, the joke in my family and amongst my friends, because I was the least physical person. We have this joke because I almost didn't, sorry, little side note, I almost didn't graduate high school because I failed PE because I basically just stopped going to my swimming class. And, and then like you couldn't graduate if you hadn't passed swimming. I mean, it was this whole thing. So we made a joke about like, girl who failed PE becomes trapeze artist. Like it's a success story anyway. So no, I was not, um, I was not physical. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think there was a combination of things. First of all, this was like I said, 1988 and I mean, there was obviously no YouTube. I think one thing that helped me was, first of all, I just by chance at the Pickle Family Circus, I was surrounded by people who were so encouraging. And the fact that I couldn't touch my toes or do a pull-up or anything, I mean, they were just, you know, the, the, what mattered to them. And when, when I say them, one of them is, is Gypsy, who's now my, you know, my, my partner at Seven Fingers and, and close friend, who was my first coach. She was the daughter of the founders of the Pickles. Ah, she's back. There we go. Um, so, uh, so I mean, so there was Gypsy, there was the Desellas, who were a family of, of circus performers who were, you know, at, at the pickles at the time. And they were just, all of them felt like the fact I was passionate about it was like enough. Like that's all you need is to just really want it. So they were so encouraging. And I think I was really lucky because I could have easily just wound up, like said, oh, I want to do trapeze and wound up with a bunch of people who said, wait a minute, you have, you know, no capacity to do this. And, you know, so that was good. Also, like I was saying, there was no YouTube and stuff. So I didn't know what existed. So I couldn't really get too intimidated, which I think was a good thing because everything was like my, my scope of knowledge only increased with my own ability, which was sort of a, like, it was nice. Like I kind of was like, oh, maybe I could learn this trick. And then I did. And then I learned, I learned about another trick and then I could learn it. So there was this really sort of wonderful, it was like on the one hand, it was challenging enough and stimulating enough to keep me going, but never overwhelming. Cause I didn't know like what the whole body of work was. I was in this little bubble where, unless I'd seen a show live, I mean, there were a few videos of you know, old trapeze artists, but I mean, so few in the world. So really someone had to like walk by me literally and say, oh, there's a trick if you put your hand here and take the rope. And so it just was like this, it was like unwrapping a present, like everything was sort of new and exciting. And also I it it made me, I think in some ways artistically it helped me too, because I was um, instantly appropriating everything because I thought since I hadn't seen it, I thought if I tried something, I was inventing it. So like often I do a trick and be like, oh, I invented how to make the trapeze spin and the rope twist. And of course, you know, um, I hadn't invented that probably, but it, it does make you have a certain sort of conviction and, and love for your work when you feel like you're actually like writing something as opposed to just, you know, doing what else what's already been done. So I feel I was for fortunate in that way. And I should say actually, and Judy Finelli, who was the um, artistic director of Pickles at the time, like, I have no idea why she saw that in me, like to be a trapeze artist. As I said, I was really out of shape, but she just, I don't know, she thought I had a nice point and a flexible back. And I, so she really pushed me and said, I think you could be a great trapeze artist. So that was already a lot to just keep me training. And I was, I started as an apprentice at Pickles. And actually, because they were very theatrically oriented and they had a whole, the whole second half of their show was sort of, a Commedia dell'arte kind of style cafe scene where everyone had a character. So the fact that I had a theater background, I could audition with a monologue and some, like I could do a cartwheel or 
I think I could even juggle three balls, but that was sort of enough to get me in as an apprentice because theater was such a big part of what they did. And then during my year as apprentice, because I fell in love with the trapeze, I hung the trapeze on the boom of the bleacher truck when we were on tour and just, you know, practiced until the sun went down for that year, basically, and had a whole company of people sort of supporting me. And as I mentioned, like teaching me as they walked by. Yeah, I think I was very fortunate. And even at even ENC, when I say this so often, like I never would be able to get into modern day uh, ENC, Ecole Nationale de Cirque, the Circus School in Montreal. Like I would never be accepted now. You know, I didn't have like a big acrobatic background and even my trapeze skills were not that, I wasn't technically that strong, but I think I had something artistically interesting, um, which is what I think in the end they accepted me for, but that was a different era. So I also think I was fortunate in that way. And even in Cirque, I mean, I think of so many things. I often think about my number at Cirque and like, you know, a few years later, it wasn't technically strong enough to sort of pass. But at the time, their values, I think, were also different. And and so um, a lot of things, you know, the stars aligned in a lot of ways so that an out of shape girl who failed PE could become a trapeze artist. <laughs> that is kind of a nice story. Like, like I like the idea of passion and well yeah sometimes it's being in the right place at the right moment but passion and and trust that people put in 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 us right sometimes and just like see it evolve i should also mention actually julie lachance i mentioned judy so julie lachance was the she's worked at the circus school and she was a choreographer for Cirque and many things but she was the the what we call the pedagogic director at the at BNC when I arrived. And so I had a funny story where I'd, I'd visited Montreal while I was at Pickles. I had thought about attending, but I wasn't ready because I was still at Pickles and there was a new season coming up I was really excited about. And then for a variety of reasons, I kind of decided last minute, it was like the month of August for, you know, a, a start of school in September. I was like, okay, I'm going, I'm going to Montreal. I'm going to go to the school. And, and I took my friend's plane ticket who was at the school and supposed to be going back to the school from San Francisco and decided not to. And so I just took her plane ticket because this was before you needed an ID to get on the plane. And I just showed up at ENC and basically it was like start of school in September. And I arrived and said, you know, okay, I'm, I'm here and I want to go to your school. And they explained to me like, well, normally there's a longer application process and that was in the spring and we're actually full and we don't have a place for you. And I made it very clear. I was very obstinate and was like, well, I'm, I'm here. So you have to take me. And I spent a month attending every day, like just showing up and watching classes and like just getting to know everyone. And then finally, and this was Julie Lachance who sort of finally said, okay, you know, the fact that I was so dedicated and she watched some of my videos and thought I had something interesting. So she's like, okay, we'll find a place for you in school. But it was really like I, speaking of passion, I definitely just sort of went Like, this is what I got. I have my passion. So hopefully it'll be enough to get me into the school. It's the epitome of just showing up. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> It's going to keep showing up. <laughs> That's fantastic. What's the difference? I mean, Montreal is known very well for its hub for circus arts and, and all of that. And what's your opinion between, I guess, California and and working in Montreal? You're now based in Montreal, but is what, what what's your comparison about the two different countries' locations and the art scene and your career within that? 
Yeah. I mean, it's a funny question for me to answer because when I was mostly working in California, it was so long ago that, in fact, things have also evolved just with the decades. So I don't know what was true to that decade compared to what was true to that, you know, um, region. But I also, in general, like having kind of worked also, you know, in Europe, there's what's interesting is that we tend to like lump contemporary circus in one category, but there's so many subcategories and it evolved so differently in different regions. And I know that when I was at, at René Suban in France, I felt like what really influenced the contemporary circus movement, there was much more the theater in France, like the sort of avant-garde theater, kind of more finding it's like cross-pollination with, with circus. Whereas in Montreal, because the contemporary dance scene was so strong here, um, and I have a whole theory about how Montreal is such a um, language is so politically charged that in fact it's not a coincidence it's all the language free forms like dance and circus and multimedia that really exploded here but anyway the dance scene is huge here so the dance the contemporary dance scene really imbued the contemporary circus movement here whereas I feel like in the states because there's I don't know because there's a lack of funding and there's not that many companies and people are often working alone it was more like the performing arts scene that really kind of you know, move towards that, the contemporary circus movement, whereas in, I mean, Australia, there's the whole burlesque influence in the political theater. I mean, there's, I, you, you probably know much more, but it was really like a, a separate and parallel um, development. And so in a way, we have this one category of contemporary circus, and yet so many parallel developments. And even, even that, like, like sometimes the lost in translation aspect of bringing like a contemporary circus show from one country to another and, and, you know, it, it not matching exactly um, what the standards are in that country. So, I mean, the main thing in back to your question, the main thing in the United States I felt was because there's not, it's so hard, like in the sense, there's not a lot of funding and there's, there's very few schools. And if you, you, you know, you have to, it's very expensive to, um, I don't know, pay a private coach and then have, you know, the space. So, Everyone, it's, I, I feel like everyone's on this um, stop clock of like trying, you know, like getting the skills, getting the number together and then trying to sell it. And so um, there's much less you, you do feel here. There's this like luxury of, of exploration that we have of it here because it's less like, you know, you got to, you know, you got to hustle, you got to earn your, earn your, your bread. Um, and and so on the one hand, it's like I sometimes actually have this huge respect for like the American circus scene because they've like it's it's not easy, but it also does mean that you're there's much less this sense of like constant renewal and exploration and improvisation and um, freedom <laughs> that that you can have. I mean, Canada is not as extreme as like Europe, but to be honest, like we don't have this wonderful limited funding, like we still have to hustle. It's still hard. We're still, you know, we, we still have to figure out how to, how to make money doing what we do. We don't have like endless, you know, um, government support, but enough, I think like even with the way the schools are set up or the way the, the studios are set up now, I know after COVID, even our studio, it's, you know, it's free. It's completely, you know, the training space is free for the community. So you do have the sense, like I can spend hours and it's like when you write in your journal and you know you can write like five pages and just get things off your chest and then maybe at the end of it, because you've already sorted through so many other thoughts, you can then write something beautiful. And I feel like 
I remember feeling like that on the trapeze. Like I could go into the studio and just kind of mess around for hours and then maybe something, one trick will come out of it or one little movement and it's a wonderful moment and instead of feeling like I have one hour where I have to create my whole act and I'm going to, and I don't know, maybe I'm not being fair to the U.S. scene because like I said, I haven't been there so much, but that has been my experience. There is this very real, like there's a different reality in terms of what the actual resources are. Also, I think that the audiences make a huge difference. Difference. Um, contemporary circus just has not evolved as much in the United States. And so you don't have very educated audiences. And so especially if you're trying to, to make a living doing it, you know, it, it, it tends to kind of keep you moving backwards because, you know, there's certain things that are, you know, you have to sort of take your audience with you in a certain way. Whereas in Montreal, I feel like the audiences are so well-versed in contemporary circus that if you want to make a leap, um, they will follow you. Um, instead of feeling like, oh, we have to, we have to go back to go, going more gently to take them with us because this is a new form for them, if that makes sense. And so that affects what people create, I think, as well. I'm not sure if this is an appropriate question, but do you think that's reflected on the shows that um, we were talking about this earlier and then myself, but um, the shows on Broadway that have tried to implement circus? Oh, that's a, such a loaded question. Um, I've worked on, on a lot of Broadway productions that want to implement circus or have or, um, and, and Gypsy, you know, worked on Pippin. Broadway has a weird love-hate thing with circus, and that's even more complicated, where they have a weird disdain for it, and yet they want to put it in their shows. And so quite often, you know, I find myself uh, having to question, you know, what, I mean, for me, if, if circus is involved, we need to feel that it's, it's the most apt form to express something. So like in a musical, when we feel you have to, like, it works because you feel like the character has to break out in the song to express that, that emotion or story beat. And circus has its own, its own things that it's the most apt form to express. And it's not just something that, you know, like quite often in, in the Broadway community, they refer to it as spectacle. Like when you just want a big, a big splash, you know, and you do a bunch of somersaults and boom, you have your big, uh, you know, exclamation points. And I think it's partly because once you open that, the parameters of like, you know, there was dance and then you, you, I mean, in a way, like if you think of acrobatics, it's just like the more extreme ends of what you can do with your body. So it's basically dance, but you've opened up these parameters because um, dance is also physical prowess. And in some senses, you know, it's it's both expressive, but it's also tricks in in a different form. Like if you do, you know, triple pirouette or whatever. So I think that circus is just kind of a larger palette to what is physical movement. So I think there's a desire to use it because it will be more surprising and it will be pushing boundaries. And yet, um, you know, there is a hierarchy of forms on Broadway um, where it's actually physical art is not, you know, it's, I mean, it's the writing and the story is really, really, if you, you know, if you have the, the pyramid, like that's what's, there's this church of story, which of course, I mean, I, I'm, I come from a writing family, the church of story, I, I agree, but it's sort of like, there's these like lower levels of what, you know, so if you take a moment to watch a straps act, it's like, okay, wait a minute, this is, this is fluff because it's not about the story. Whereas a form like ballet or opera, where it's, inherent in the form that sure the nutcracker is a story or the magic food is a story but we all understand that we are like dilating the moment to watch a moment of excellence or prowess or beauty of just this sonata that Mozart wrote or the solo of the you know 
um, Sugar Plum Fairy that's about the dance, but it's not necessarily about Clara's journey <laughs> in the Nutcracker as much. And I think that there's that disconnect in Broadway where they don't they don't yet see circus as a as an expressive form. So they want to use it, but they also have this really this aversion to it. And it's something that I've had to work through in a lot of the productions I've done. But it's also, I mean, it's a very, it's a very um, like when I said the Church of Story, it's, it's a sacred form, the Broadway form in many ways. And, you know, whether it's the, the people who create it or the critics or the audiences, like people don't necessarily want their form disrupted that much. Um, so I think that it's, you know, it's it's a complicated process, like integrating circus within it. And I think especially because there's this sense that it's like sort of almost like a, a cheap trick to get, you know, applause or something instead of doing something that's um, that's deep and meaningful. And yet I believe highly that circus can be deep and meaningful, but it's just about really understanding how to properly, you know, use it. I think that's a really good insight and I, I love how you've articulated that. It's been a number of conversations that I've had with other people in the Broadway realm about that and I, I think that that's a, a wonderful articulation. And, and also I think the audiences, like like you said, the audiences that go to a Broadway show have a certain level of expectations and that's a different, it may be the same person, but that same person where they go to see a Vegas show will have a different expectation of what they will see in a Vegas show. So when you're trying to combine that, Artistically, that's a tough, that's a challenge, right? Yeah, I think that there could be an anomaly where that all comes together in a perfect cacophony of, of things, but how and who is going to do that? And also you've got to take that risk because there's always a bottom line, and especially post-COVID, now they're going to be like, well, let's go with the shows that we can actually know we nail and, and we can make money from rather than taking those risks, right? So, Sorry, you were talking about the lenses? Well, the lens thing, I think that it works to your favor and against you. I mean, there's times when if you if you do something unexpected within that lens, it, it definitely, you know, can can help you if you if, if suddenly circ I mean, it was it's a very, you know, when we started using, I mean, not just we, but there were other other companies as well, like using like with lost we used everyday props. So, you know, it was back in 2001, but to have a bathtub and refrigerator and a sofa and we're doing circus on it, it was changing the lens. So suddenly it was kind of more impressive to see a handstand because just to see it with a sofa, it was like you were seeing it for the first time again. So there's like ways in which when you, when you defy the lens, it like renews, you, you see something fresh and you have like renewed uh, sort of appreciation for it. But there are other times where the lens gets in your way, where if like the magic flute example, you know, a, Broadway audiences don't, don't necessarily want to, to extend their, their version of what they're going to experience. And so if you, if the number goes past two minutes where you're not going back to the story instantly, it's problematic, even if it's not problematic, but it's because it's that lens. So I think that it kind of can work both ways. Let's talk a little bit, but I mean, you've talked a lot about the seven fingers, the set duo, but we haven't really talked about it. So do you want to tell us about it? It's such a, I often say to people, it's like, it's no, it's no um, model in the sense of like, I would never tell people like, look what, you know, we did this and this is how you should do it. Cause it's, there's so many things that are like unconventional and that you, you know, it's like the dysfunctional functional thing that you would not think would normally work for um, that are, what do I mean? We are defying like what 
conventional knowledge says about collaboration <laughs> and everything. Um, but it's like, we're like a messy family. I mean, that's like the best way to explain it. We were a bunch of friends who started a company together and, and there's a lot of, you know, arguing and, and, you know, kind of who, who talks loudest and is, you know, the most feels the most strongly about a certain idea. And, and we kind of have figured out how to make it work. So it's really no formula for sure. But, um, yeah, so we were we were seven friends who started a company together, and then our our first desire was to create a show together, and not knowing what that would bring at all. Just you know, we got together, we did like you know, definitely like you know, we made it, we stamped it. Okay, we're 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 you call it when you make something official when you when we okay, I don't find the word, but anyway, we made a company officially legally and then we created a show and thought okay we'll see if the show's a success if we keep going but we all had other gigs booked after and everything and the show was really interesting because i think we were on the one hand like so on the same page in terms of where we were in our lives and what we wanted out of the show and out of circus in general and then when we got to the details creatively we were on such different pages and had really different kind of visions and styles and at first thought that, oh my gosh, this is, you know, it's the opposite of what they say about creation, about like, oh, following one voice and having one vision. It was like, like, it was like a pizza of styles and things. But I think in the end, it was actually kind of like this great, you know, like you make a cocktail. Um, and so it was sort of an unexpected, I think it had an unexpected chemistry with our different visions and styles and trying to figure out how to weave it all together without a director. And then that sort of continues to be our, our uh, challenge is we now and we all have different projects and where we are directing now more than we're performing and we all still have different styles and visions and yet now we kind of try to use that as we know each other and we know each other's strengths and weaknesses and um, superpowers so we try to use that as we you know to figure out who's going to do which project and how to support each other and how to challenge each other and so it's funny in the, in the questions about things I've learned because I saw the, the questions you were going to ask and I saw one of them was things I've learned. And one of the things I, I think about often is um, a friend of mine once said, it's better to do something that one person is really passionate about than something that 12 people like agree on. And I think that it's in some ways really contrary to this idea of like, I don't know, a democratic process or um, where everyone has an equal voice or I, I feel like that's definitely something I've learned through Seven Fingers. It's like if one person really believes it and has so much conviction and so much passion and sees it, then the rest of us kind of go like, okay, you you seem to know, you seem to feel really strongly about this, so we'll follow you, follow you on this instead of always just trying to come to a consensus and really like diluting everything um, by finding like a lowest common denominator solution. So instead of, I think maybe that's why, the first show worked as it was like, in a way, a, a compilation of passionate ideas as opposed to like, uh, like a dilution of like a lowest common denominator one idea. So, no, that's really interesting because I feel like there's a freedom in the way that it's you know it's a collaboration that you've worked on, but there's also problems with having no structure in in, in a way as well. So you've got to battle that, you know. So Cirque has a very you know hierarchical structure and pillars and support and things like that and in some way that's great but in other ways there's pros and cons in both ways and I, I've worked for multiple companies around the world who have various levels of structure and um, I like the concept of seven fingers because 
there is a lot of freedom to do things the way that you want to, but you have to work hard because there's not that structure there behind you to lift you up if you fall, I guess. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. And interesting, interesting with structures, because I mean, having also worked for Circ a lot, like sometimes that structure was tremendously helpful, but you know, moving pieces move around and different people are in different spots and suddenly the structure that's supposedly there to help you is actually really not helping you. And you kind of feel like, okay, this is, you know, this would be better without all this other, like these extra steps. And, and I think one thing that's nice about, well, about having your company is you get to sort of choose when those moments are, you know, how much structure you're going to put and how much we talk about it. Like, you know, wanting to be the kayak, that's just the little, little kayak. And you can, if you want to turn left, you turn left instead of, the big cruise ship that to turn left, it, you know, takes, I don't know, there's a thing about it. It takes three months, three weeks and 30 people to, you know, whatever. I'm not sure. It's it's a saying, I think, but. Yeah, but the, yeah. I've used the cruise ship analogy as well. Uh, definitely. Yeah. In some of the aspects that I've worked. This is like, you can't, I can't turn on a dime right now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And we have like, I'll have moments where I'll have like, I don't know, a, a stage manager, someone who says, okay, we want to do the schedule for the week all detailed. And I'm like, I'm going to do it day by day. I know that's frustrating, but I really need, I need to be a kayak. Like I need to be able tomorrow to say, we didn't get as far as I thought we would with the opening act. We're going to do it for three hours today. Instead of saying like it's here where it's like, you have a half hour for this, you have a half hour for that, no matter what you have to move on. And I get it. There's so many moving parts. You can't say, I want to keep doing this, but so I'm constantly going, we're a kayak, we're a kayak. <laughs> I love it. Where do you see the circus and live entertainment industry moving forward post-COVID? Is there anything that you think is going to shift, change, adapt? I mean, on the one hand, I think that people have, I think we're craving live entertainment again post-COVID. I think maybe there's a way it can kind of be, get a renewed, uh, a renewed life and appreciation to like have, you know, to, 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 to be, touched I almost want to say literally but you know I mean we, we feel like we're literally touched just being in the same room with with live performance and and with other audience members experiencing it with us um so I I, I feel and hope that after a year of isolation that that's gonna that we're gonna have a renewed desire for that and then often what happens with that is that then we have a renewed desire for the ones that are like quintessentially live and I think that circus is quintessentially live and that we feel like we're witnessing something and we see someone miss a trick or redo it or you know we get that sense of something happening for the first time as opposed to theater well-rehearsed theater which of course it is different every night and yet often you just kind of can forget and think you're you know watching Netflix instead of a live play because it just seems like you know fourth wall and perfectly rehearsed and circus has naturally that whether it has a fourth wall in the concept or not it feels like it has no fourth wall because you're just really you know living every second with the acrobat and I think to that point, you know, the sort of immersive side of it, I know that there was a huge movement for like immersive theater. And I did Queen of the Night in what, 2013, which is highly immersive. And then it went a little less in style. But I'm wondering now whether I mean, I don't know, maybe after COVID, everyone's going to still have an aversion to being touched for a while or be more germaphobic. After a year, we all have like heightened awareness of it, but it might be the opposite will happen. And we'll have that that desire again to kind of have those um, boundaries breached. Uh, so I sort of hope that I mean, I'm more speculating. It's hard to really know for sure. I mean, what's scary I have to say is there is that the novelty, I mean, the fact that there's so much Instagram and whatever it is, people are awesome or whatever it's called, or even America's got talent where you feel like it's everywhere and you can see like quality 
artists doing their little 20 seconds on Instagram and it's just everywhere. So I often worry like what, you know, what that means for, you know, the audience's sort of understanding and desire to watch live circus if they feel like they can see it on their phone, you know, so-and-so who does a certain trick, you know. So like that's a concern for me. And yet anyone who's, who has, experience it live knows it's nothing like watching it on Instagram or something, but I wonder whether it'll affect people's appetite for it because it didn't used to be so accessible and there was way more this, I mean, people would, you know, I have friends when I was back in the nineties when I was touring with Cirque and, and for me, of course, the show was so much more, I don't know, sophisticated and complex and artsy. And yet they'd walk away like, did you see that guy hanging from that pole, like horizontally. And like, they'd really, you clearly they were seeing this for the first time even if they weren't seeing it for the first time and so um i wonder if that wonder that sense of wonder uh will still remain in our highly digital age but i hope so you're talking earlier about culturally from country to country what audiences want to see and and that sort of thing and i i i always we did a show in macau where they're doing russian swing to the water and they're doing you know quadruple saltos into the and then you know diving into the water and, and the Chinese who have a lot of a, uh, access to they have very good divers Olympic divers they're mm-hmm. very good there was no kind of like wow and then there'd somebody yeah. dive off the Russian swing and do this like joking like flipper move like this kind of like fun yeah. and they'd like lose it they'd lose their sh- yeah and it was like Oh, so that's what you like? Oh, okay. Yeah. So I feel like um, that's the thing they haven't seen. That yeah. Yeah, and and it's funny to them, and they they kind of like some of those cheesy sort of kitschy kind of moves and jokes, and and so I'm quite fascinated. Like I also hope with the Instagram that and and the Mm -hmm. Got Talent shows that that appetite isn't lost. But we, I think, yeah, we have to find different ways to connect with audiences when they do show yeah, up right um, exactly rather than and and a lot of those things that you do see on instagram are about a display of uh prowess as opposed yeah. to uh the human element that you would go back to and the storytelling yeah, exactly. and yeah, yeah that visceral that, that visceral relationship so yeah i'm hoping i'm positive anyway <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. It's, good, it's, good, it's good my first husband was a chinese acrobat um in, in china he, you know, he was born in like 1962, so he was really raised. It was still communist China. I mean, still communist China. But you know, what I mean, really like cultural revolution, the whole thing. And um, and he would say that the, the troops hated touring within China because no one ever reacted. Like the audiences, they'd seen it all hundreds of times. They'd just talk and walk around, and it was just horrible. And then as soon as they'd leave the country and and tour other countries, it was like just so exciting to have reactions from audience. So yeah, that was like at one moment he had a whole story. He was the managing acrobatic troupe where some artists had defected. It was like, I don't know, early eighties. And so they were punished by not being allowed to tour. And he said, it's like, for them, it was like the death of the company because no one wants to just perform in China because it was like, like there was nothing, you know, no, no audiences really cared about the performance. And so, I mean, I don't know if that's still the case, but that's hilarious. Um, I was going to ask if, um, because you're talking about immersive technologies and the show you did for Virgin was also within those lines, right? And But also I found it very interesting because you guys started creation before the pandemic and then 
pandemic happened and then all this i don't know immersive reality like we started experiencing the world through screens mostly and then you went back to recreation and i don't i wonder how all that year affected your process we i mean what was interesting with virgin was that we first because we had to do i did workshops of the shows three years ago because they needed to to decide to give a green light to the shows before even building the ship because the theaters were going to be built around, like in function of the shows on them. And it was just a much longer process. So I did my first workshop three years ago where I kind of created the whole show in a rough draft form and then another one six months later. And anyway, so it was supposed to premiere uh, last spring, you know, when the pandemic hit. And then of course it was pushed to now. It's like right now they're on the ship, but it's really strange to have been like started working on something three years ago and it's only premiering now. But it is true. I mean, it was very uh, immersive in the sense you have of audience contact and audience interaction. We had to to remove some of that for now, like a lot of the touching and like one moment they dance with people or they move people. And and we kind of have to have the social distancing there, which we were wondering, like, oh, gosh, that's such a part of it. And yet what's the good thing is that audiences like our standards now, like even just being in the room with someone five feet away from you feels like immersive as opposed to like, you don't need someone coming up and, you know, touching your face. So in general, I mean, I was worried with all of our shows that they would lose relevance post pandemic and that we'd need to like, Oh my God, we have all of these new things we need to say and express after having lived through this year and we need to grieve and we need to celebrate, you know? And yet I was surprised how so many of them actually, have like a renewed relevance and in a way the themes were kind of there and they're just, we just see them differently now. And even my show Passager, which also like was, was sort of thwarted by COVID. We're supposed to have a tour that, you know, ended up getting canceled because of COVID and now they're touring again this fall. And I remember thinking, Oh my gosh, I have, it's about traveling. I have to like update it to, you know, have masks and, you know, I don't know what, but then you realize like, no, actually the, 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 on the, the homage to traveling itself, it's like, it's it's such a, a siren song for us. I mean, it's really like everyone is kind of yearning to travel again, and the memories of where we've been and where we want to go and the past and the future. So in a way, it has this renewed relevance without having to actually change the show. And, and you realize that also people are kind of burnt out on like, you know, talking about the pandemic, like directly. Um, in some ways, you know, you don't want another show that kind of talks about everything we just lived through. So in a way, it's nice to have something that doesn't ignore it, but is also like a return to, to normal, too. So I don't know, that's that's sort of kind of the interesting element in there. What would you say is the thing you like the most about you, Jeff? So the thing I like the most is also the thing I like the least, and that's uh, the, the people. <laughs> like, I mean, by far, it's the thing I like the most is, is just the... I, I like, and in fact, it's one reason that I like directing more than I liked performing. I think performing can be a kind of a lonely, especially when you're a soloist, it can be kind of a lonely existence in some ways. And people think like, oh, we have all this love from the audience. And you're like, that's not love. It's like, you don't even see their faces. Like you have no human exchange and you like give all this stuff and it just feels like it goes into a void. And what I love about directing is like, you know, you, you work with people, you have like genuine connection and you see, especially when. I often feel like to get the best out of my artists, I need to sound kind of cheesy, but I need to see them with loving eyes, like almost like feel like I'm their mom or I'm their the person in love with them and like see the most beautiful and brilliant qualities in them. And then I can figure out how to get that out of them. And that's actually a nice 
place to be, to be seeing people with loving eyes and kind of have your cast that you just think they're all these like gorgeous, unique gems because you're partly because you're, you know, you're choosing to see that those sides of them, but they are, they are gorgeous and unique gems. So I think that that's really, and that's always what I miss when I'm not working. I miss the people, I miss the contact and the communities we create. But the flip side of it is it's by far the most stressful side. And I, when I say the worst, I don't mean because people are awful, but I mean like, you know, the feeling of being responsible for people when things aren't going well, that's always what, what breaks my heart when I know I'm in creation and someone is like, I don't know, not liking the work or the show or has doubts. And then that's the thing I'm up all night worrying about that person as opposed to necessarily even worrying about the quality of the show. So it's definitely like the double-edged sword in it. And I recently did something during the pandemic where I just wrote a script for a museum installation where there were no people (laughs) involved. And I was like, whoa, that's like, it's a pretty dry process. Like you just don't really like it was, there was nothing on the one and it was really easy. I didn't have any drama or any emotional upheaval. I just wrote something and sent it off. On the other hand, you know, it was like kind of empty because you don't have any interaction. So it's definitely the, the best and the hardest part of it. That's awesome. And if you could change something about your job or the industry, what would it be? Ooh, yeah, that is a hard one. Um, there's tons, it's like, there's so many, like, uh, I don't know, catch 22s of things that I change, but then that would mean, you know, it's like, there's like just things that are like inevitable, like that are, I think what's hard for me is, um, gosh, what, 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 what my job about the industry. I mean, circus is really messy and kind of lawless and it's actually something I like about it. Like having been in other environments where everything is just you know, so structured and, and I kind of love our freedom and our, our um, audacity and daring and just kind of, I, I love the lawlessness of it, but then the lawlessness can kind of, there are moments where I sort of wish that we had a bit more, I don't know, more structured thought around it. Um, I, I often feel even with my performers that they're like not, gosh, I don't mean to insult any school, but like not actually properly formed to like have professional careers in ways like if you have a theater conservatory and you have, you're being trained in all of these peripheral skills, whether it's technical theater and um, uh, stage management, there's just such a a, bri- a broader knowledge and a bigger history around the, the academic side of it. And I think that there's still something very like savage about circus, which is great. But I often wish we, you know, we had a bit more of an, of a, of that structure behind it. Um, so that even just that discussion about how there's many different forms of contemporary circus and within a certain, even I'm not even talking country to country, but like whether you're doing something that's essentially a conceptualized variety show where you're putting in numbers as is or whether you're, you're still having an act-based show, but you're creating all the numbers based on the storytelling or whether you're like not even having an act-based show and, you, and you're using the skills just freeform to tell the story. But I feel like there's a lack of vocabulary about it. So even when I'm in a creation with my artists, I feel like there's different expectations and different interpretations. And there's always this like communication learning curve that I find tiring. Um, so recently I've been like having this desire to get more into like an academia side of circus to sort of start creating those that kind of um like dialogue and i know it also probably exists and there are there is an academic side of circus but i don't necessarily feel like the people are actually doing the work are necessarily involved in that academic side so there's still a disconnect so i maybe that's it but i also like i said something i kind of love about circus and 
you know, it was really interesting because when I went, to, when I was doing Paramore on Broadway and I had the, the dancers, the ensemble dancers who are Broadway dancers and the actors and the circus people. And in the beginning, it was kind of refreshing to be with the actors and the dancers because they were so professional, just so, and like they knew how to respond, how to say this. And, you know, the circus people were kind of a little bit more rough. And then in the end, it just made me, I had such a love and like a renewed love and appreciation for circus artists um, because there was something, you know, for instance, and I'm just going to say this, but like, you know, in the way it's structured and in dance and unions and everything, it's like, okay, if I'm going to do this cue or this trick for this person and I'm paid this extra money and then that, and it was like, I was kind of saying, well, it's kind of impossible to do that in circus because we're constantly like, okay, this person's wrist is hurting. You're going to jump in for the trick. And there's this generosity in the way we work that it just wouldn't function if we tried to like have a structure like that. And anytime, you know, it's just, I, I couldn't even envision it. And I felt like the circus people didn't even question that. Like for them, they're like, they're constantly like saving the show and not like always looking at sort of the, I mean, I don't mean to make a cliche about Broadway dancers or anything because they're, I, I love many of them, but there is like sometimes that, that, that mindset like got in the way of like actually just having a joyful process. And, and also I would say, I think one thing I love in the, like the lawlessness is there's a line, like, uh, I think it, oh God, John Cleese said, uh, true creativity is indistinguishable from play. And I think it's something that circus people really like, first of all, I mean, circus also often feels like play, like when they're just like, Oh, let's see if we can jump through the hoop like this. And how many of these can you do? Um, and I think that it's a, it's a genuinely like fertile creative environment. And I know when I'm in super structured environments, they're like, you guys got to stop playing around and you only have half hour to do this work. Um, and not really acknowledging, I don't know, the playing around is actually how we create. And I think that that's a very healthy thing in circus. So I'm actually contradicting what I just said about wanting, wanting what I would change because I think I wouldn't change it, but maybe there's an, an in between of, of finding a little bit more like structured thought around it. I think that's interesting too, because if you think about, and maybe it's only my experience, but a lot of the writing about circus is either anecdotal or historically based of, you know, Barnum and Bailey history or Cirque du Soleil history rather than a overall zoom back and study of circus arts as a whole in a thesis sort of academic sense, whereas as opposed to that, there is a lot of dissertations and studies on theatre and history things and um it does I, it's kind of interesting thought that you've brought up because there's there's a lot to be sort of studied and looked at and even your analogies about the way contemporary circus is evolving from country to country based on its socioeconomic cultural structure is something that's really fascinating to me. So Anna, you're doing a master's. Let's let's uh, <laughs> you, need, you need to bring that up at uh, at your university. <laughs> and in fairness to those who are out there doing dissertation and stuff, I think those people exist. But first of all, it's not they're not very many. And like I said, it's not necessarily consistent with like there's like we don't we don't have much access to to those studies and things. So I don't want to I don't want to say nothing's happening because I believe it is. But I know that I'm like. I, you know, I'm not even aware that that's happening very much. And I've been doing this for 30 years. So, but Anna, what were you, what were you? Uh, I was just going to say, so if anybody's listening and you know of them, send them in to us because we want to read them. <laughs> for real, like I've been looking and looking because I am doing my master's and I'm writing my thesis and I'm looking for stuff and it's so hard. On the other hand, it got me to do firsthand commentaries with the few people I've found that have written stuff but it's it's hard so if you know of anything 
They send it. Yeah, okay, of course. Yeah, we have to make make a big announcement. So, Shana, where can our audience uh, see your work, learn more about you? How do we find you? Are you on LinkedIn? Um, I'm not on LinkedIn, sorry. I mean, I really, that's the thing about having a company is all I ever do is promote the company itself. I don't even know if the company's on LinkedIn. But, um, of course, like, so, yeah, Lisa Dois, um Seven Fingers website, and I don't know, Instagram and Facebook and all those things. I mean, I have my own Instagram and Facebook, but it's more personal. So people can follow me, but they'll just see pictures of my cat and kid. Uh, yeah. So we have, I mean, I, we have our show passage touring the UK and France in the fall. And then I have the new Virgin show that if you want to take a cruise, you can see that. I, I love the show actually. It's really, that's, I, I should do a little aside that it was nice to be able to, they really did want to have like uh, original, more daring type of entertainment on the ship so even though i said oh we did a cruise ship show it's not it's not your standard cruise ship show and it was really designed like specifically for it which was really cool where does the virgin ship leave from so the the new the, the scarlet lady um which is the first ship it's a caribbean so it's miami but then next year there's the valiant lady which is mediterranean um and that uh, will also have my the same show dual reality so there's those, and then I'll have more ships, I think, in the future. But there's those two for now. So you have your choose your choice of countries. Oh, our our show in San Francisco. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I can't believe it because it's not not up and running yet. That's why I didn't think of it. But yeah, we're opening our show uh, in San Francisco in October. And so come if you are going to San Francisco, you have to come to our show. Club Fugazi, right? Or Club Fugazi? Yeah. Fugazi. Fugazi is the name. It's called Club Fugazi. It's the name of the venue. The show is called Dear San Francisco because it's kind of a love letter to the city. So, but yeah, Fugazi is what we're, we're mostly trying to promote as a name. Cool. Thank you very much. This was a great conversation. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. We would love to hear from you, our listeners, on who you would like us to feature on this podcast or what topics fascinate you. There is a link in our podcast description where you can send us your requests and guest nominations. Theater Art Life provides regular monthly webinars and podcast episodes for free. If you have the means, donations can be made via a link in the podcast notes. We would be thankful for any support you can give us. You can learn more about Theater Art Life, the global media site for entertainment, at www.theaterartlife.com. And you can follow us on all social media platforms. We want to thank David Sire for composing the music for our podcast. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theatre at Life podcast.